Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's uh, episode of Mito Minutes. I'm here today with Eric Fogg, and he is from York Hospital in Southern Maine. Eric is an expert in COVID preparedness and has been selected to be on numerous community boards, helping different uh, communities and small hospitals be prepared and be proactive in working with the, the COVID outbreak. Eric has a wealth of information that I'm excited to share with all of you. Um, and one of the things we're going to hit on is with our Mito community, we really need our, our folks to be prepared. And we are going to talk about um, having a flu box there in your house with uh, um, necessary um, items in the box to help you be prepared so that you can uh, try to avoid uh, any sort of medical intervention or being in an ER situation. And then Eric also has some great insight in just staying healthy from uh, in a social aspect to uh, social distancing. Uh, what is the masks? How should we be washing our hands? Just all kinds of great ways to ride out this last tailwind of COVID. So Eric, thank you for joining us today. Um, did I hit all the highlights? Absolutely, you did. And it's really a pleasure, <clears throat> pleasure to be here. I really enjoy talking about this topic. Unfortunately, we've had to talk a lot about it recently, given the nature of this uh, pandemic. So glad to share whatever knowledge that I have and look forward to it. So thanks for having me. Oh, we are so thrilled to have you here with us today. As I mentioned, you are the preparedness expert for York Hospital in Southern Maine. And um, I know a lot of people, when they look at the COVID maps, go, oh, well, Maine doesn't really seem to be in a huge outbreak. But you shared with me uh, pre-interview that um, per capita, your, your testing and your outbreaks are just as significant as other hospitals or other areas in the country, just given your, your geographics. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you've set up your testing situations and your, your ability to contact trace and try to uh, keep, keep everything confined and, and moving forward in a positive way in Maine? Sure, and uh, it's a great question. And, and to your point, yes, Maine has been has been somewhat lucky. We certainly were in the early part of this and, and through the summer. Uh, even going back to October, we had a state positivity rate of 0.5%. But as we sit here today, we're at over 5% prevalence. So although 5% sounds um, not as bad as other states, what's concerning is it's a tenfold increase in such a short, short period of time. So this is what folks refer to as exponential growth. Uh, and that's a concerning thing from an epidemiological standpoint of what's happening in community. So um, it is certainly uh, an issue in our community. As a matter of fact, our healthcare system at York Hospital is dealing with an outbreak even involving our caregivers uh, as part of our medical surgical team. So this is in our backyard, it's in our front yard, it's in not only our doorstep, but it's in our house now. So it's certainly been a, been a, a challenging time here. So um, as you mentioned, we recognized early on in this pandemic that we were gonna have to get into the testing business, not only to support our healthcare system, but also to support our community. And we were lucky enough, we had a, we had a location that housed one of our walk-ins only about an hour, uh, sorry, a mile from our main campus. And it used to be an old car dealership. So it had this enormous parking lot attached to it with a portico 
over it. So it quickly became like a logical place to launch a drive-through test site. Excellent. And we opened up a drive-through test site in, in, in May. And if you remember early on as part of this, testing wasn't readily available early on. So we were simply testing people that met very, very strict criteria uh, established by the CDC. So you had to actually have symptoms consistent with COVID-19, or you had to have a known exposure with somebody. So we were probably testing 30 to 50 people a day in our, our small community um, here. Well, Maine had an executive order that if you were traveling into the state that still exists today, that you um, need to quarantine for 14 days. In Maine, like, like even the state that you're talking to me from is a very popular summer destination. And so there was a lot of pressure on the governor and on the state to have some um, compromise to both protect the citizens of, of Maine, but also to allow um, folks to come visit the state and have some economy to support our summer tourism business, which Maine really lives off summer tourism. It's what keeps the, the states healthy economically. And so as part of that compromise, the state reached out to us at York Hospital. We're in the southernmost port we're at mile marker seven. So as you kind of go from New Hampshire into the state of Maine through I-95, we're the first health system you bump into. So they reached out to us to support a mechanism to offer testing to people coming to travel into the state. <clears throat> and as such, they provided us with four um, Abbott instruments that do the rapid molecular testing and they provided us with the test kits to do so. So we not only had a need in our community and our healthcare system to test, we we're also partnering with the state of Maine. So by July 1st, we had that stood up and we went from testing, oh, 50, 30 to 50 people a day. Now we were up early on 150, 200, 200 plus and by wow. August, by August, we were well uh, close to 300 patients a day, particularly around holidays like the 4th of July. So we got really good at testing. We learned a lot about it. We developed a platform where people could schedule these appointments. We had both a rapid program. It had a limited capacity. Like I said, we only had uh, four instruments. Each test takes 15 minutes to run. So I could only do about 12 tests per hour on that. We were open 10 hours a day. You quickly see that, um, we needed more testing platforms. So we added a, a lab-based PCR testing program to that. But we were lucky enough to have a partner in New Hampshire that could turn those results around in 24 hours. So, um, which sounded a lot better than what we were hearing from other parts uh, of the country. So um, we got through the summer tourism. We didn't have a high positivity rate. So we mostly were testing travelers. So people who otherwise wouldn't be tested but only were getting tested so they could bypass the executive order because with a negative COVID test, you were free to check into your hotels and go around the state and enjoy the beautiful um, lakes and ocean and you know Bar Harbor and, and Cadillac Mountain and all the wonderful places here to visit Maine. And then we converted to once the fall struck, kids back in school um, and testing for those reasons. And then starting in late October and certainly through November, we found an increasing prevalence of the disease. So now we're testing exposures. We have 25 current outbreaks in our small community alone, including our healthcare system, as I mentioned before. So 
our 40 mile catchment area has 25 active outbreaks currently that we're dealing with right now. So we are testing all either symptomatic or exposures currently. Um, so it's really evolved um, quite a bit. So we just did our 34,000th COVID test last week alone. So, so uh, we've had a pretty busy site. That's a long answer to a very simple question. Wow. No, that is a great answer to my question. So would you say that you have these 25 outbreaks? Are you considered now to be um, at a percentage where most of your outbreak is considered community-based, where people aren't even sure where they might have come in contact with it? Absolutely. We, are, we have 100% community spread going on here. Um, our positivity rate at, my, at the state level, it's about 5%, as I mentioned when we started, but my test site alone is probably close to 7%. So um, yes, absolutely community spread. A lot of folks, um, what, what anecdotally we hear is, gosh, I, I can't think of how I may have gotten this. Of course, I've been to the grocery store, or of course, I've done this or been at work or that, but um, Clearly, there's other people who have a known exposure. Um, you know, they got together with somebody, and two days later, that somebody called them and said, "Hey, I just tested positive. You may want to be on alert." And then the next day, they lose their sense of smell or taste, and here they come. Here they come. Wow. So, what can people do to? Obviously, not everybody who's diagnosed with COVID or tests positive needs hospitalization. Um, we hear that quite frequently. Um, although here in Minnesota, where I'm at, we are at a 98% capacity with our ICU and COVID-based hospitalization. So our hospitals are full and bustling. Um, what is a great way or what can, I, what can we put in our flu box for our mito patients to help them ride out the symptoms, stay safe, um, and know that they can you can have COVID and stay home, I guess is what I'm trying to say. What would be some things to put in the box? Yeah, so there's two strategies anytime you're dealing with an infectious disease, and that this applies to the flu, this applies to cold season, this applies to all sorts of infectious disease. So there are pharmaceutical interventions. So those are medications, vaccinations, and those types of interventions. And then there's non-pharmaceutical interventions, and some people call those NPIs. And those have to do with individual things that you can do personally, so you can wear a mask. There is, um, you know, I, I'm in the healthcare space, so so the notion of wearing a mask, you know, when I was a student in training in all areas, when you went into an operating room, you wore a mask, right? It's been well established for a hundred years that reducing the droplets that come out of your mouth and nose when breathing, talking, or whatever um, impacts the transmission of infectious diseases. So now you carry that out into the community. So wearing a mask is something that you can do to, to protect yourself. You can also kind of keep distant from people. Um, this, this notion of six feet is somewhat scientifically based, but it's all about risk stratification. There's nothing super special about six feet. We believe if somebody coughs or sneezes, that those particles, those droplets that come out of your mouth will start, they're heavy. They will start to fall to the ground, you know, in an interval of three to six feet. Um, can they go further? Sure. Uh, but, but the majority of them will fall to the ground. So that's how the six feet comes into play. But if you just keep some distance from people, that's a great strategy. If you avoid places where there's a lot of people, Again, that's a great strategy. That applies to the flu. We've always, we've always known that. So um, definitely, you know, we we 
you live in a cold state. I live in a cold state. So this type of year, we're driving people inside. Uh, there is some seasonality to respiratory infections. That's why we don't see a lot of flu in the summer, right? Because people are outside and there's benefits to that. Most viruses, including COVID, don't do well in humid, hot air. Um, so we don't have that luxury anymore. It's harder to get outside. I don't know about you. It's gotten cool here. I did my morning walk this morning. It was about 28 degrees. That's a little different than it was three months ago, you know? Yeah. Um, so We're at a high of 19 today, so. Ah, I got 10 degrees on you today. You do, so. yeah. But the bottom line is we're, we're inside a little bit more. So we have Definitely. to be careful about that. Diseases spread more readily when you're inside, uh, particularly if there's not great ventilation, if there's not open spaces, if you can't crack a window. As it relates to a, a flu box or, or something that you can, you can have at the house and, and be on the ready, I think having things like Tylenol or anti-inflammatory such as Advil, ibuprofen, naproxen, sodium, Aleve, any of those are nice to have. The, the over-the-counter cold um, uh, you know, formulations can be helpful because the common symptomatology of the flu and COVID, they tend to overlap. So nasal congestion, sore throat, um, you know, those type of things are very common. So those symptomatic medications tend to help a little bit. But if you'll allow me for a second to get on my soapbox and talk about fever, do you mind if I, if I talk about that? No, please do. So, so fever, I think, is somewhat misunderstood. I think if, if you're being honest and I'm being honest, when we were children and we had a fever, our parents, our grandparents got us the aspirin, got us the Tylenol, got us the ibuprofen, because there was some association with fever and, and, and something bad. And the worst of that scenario is what we call a febrile seizure, that if you get a temperature above something 103, 104, that you're at risk of having a, a fever. Um, and I think that's been blown a little bit out of proportion. We as humans have gone through evolution. Your body mounts a febrile response for a very, very important reason. And that's to kickstart your immune response and all the metabolic processes to combat an infection. And it's a good thing. Right. So I, I just want to remind your listeners that fever is your friend. There is nothing wrong with reducing the fever to a comfortable, because we feel lousy when we have a temperature of 103. Gosh, it feels like you're shivering. You, you feel like you got run over by a truck. I understand, appreciate that lowering your temperature a little bit when you have a high temperature is comfortable, but eliminating your fever, you are going against hundreds of thousands of years of evolution in your body, right? To right. your body's doing that for a reason. So I just wanted to take a moment to do a sidestep on the, there's nothing wrong with having Tylenol and, and Motrin in the house to help with the body aches, the chills and reducing the fever to a little bit. If you can get your temperature to a hundred, 101. So your body still has that metabolic kickstart but yet you're, you've lowered it enough where you feel a little bit, you're not shivering under the covers. That's probably a reasonable strategy, but um, I just wanna take the opportunity to remind your listeners that fever is a, it's an evolutionary byproduct of a very important uh, function that, that happens to help your body fight any infection. Right. That is a great reminder. I know many people just want to quickly eliminate that fever thinking that that will expedite 
moving the process through and actually it slows it down. So that is a very good point. How about hydration? Our patient population uh, really, um, because it's an energy depletion disorder, um, we need as much energy going into our cells as possible. So I'm constantly on my soapbox of hydration, 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 you know, the best way to get oxygen into your cells is to drink water. So what are some good ways for people to maximize their hydration uh, at when they're with the flu? Is Gatorade a good thing? Pedialyte? There's so many hydration multipliers out there right now. What do you recommend? Yeah, so another great question. And at the baseline, um, all people tend to be run a little bit dry, right? Mm -hmm. so we probably don't drink enough water um, as a whole. So we all run a little bit low on, on fluids. So hydration is critically important, as you highlighted, for all metabolic functions. Um, it helps flush out toxins. It keeps your cells healthy and active. So just from there, there is no substitution for the best hydration product out there and it's free and it comes out your sink, right? Is right. water. Water is the best. However, to your point, there are products out there and you have to be careful with them. I think that a lot of them are well intended. So the Powerades, the Gatorades, the Pedialytes, where they start to, I think, add some benefits to it is, is they're supplemented. They're supplemented oftentimes with electrolytes, so sodium, potassium. They're also supplemented with a little bit of glucose in the form of sugar. So my first suggestion is if you're just, you're running a fever, you're running a little bit dry, I like starting with water. Uh, you know, people, ah, water doesn't taste good. Add some lemon to it. So it's just plain lemon, just to give it some flavor and some vitamin C. That's a great start. And drink as much of it until your urine turns clear. That's a great indication that your hydration status is good. The lighter color your urine, the better. If you go to the bathroom and your urine is as yellow as florette, like you're dry, right? So just yeah. looking at your urine alone can give you a sense of hydration status. Um, once you start, if, if unfortunately you start dealing with um, GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and you're losing some electrolytes, then I like adding in some of these. Um, I think Pedialyte probably, um, you know, Gatorade, Powerade, they all have some similarities to it. I like to dilute them at first. So I do a one-to-one -one dilution and I recommend that to patients that I see. So fill half the glass with your, with your over-the-counter Gatorade, Powerade, Pedialyte, and then fill the rest with water. Um, that's a great way to dilute out some of the, you know, uh, some of these, because I, it, it's up, they were originally designed, Gatorade came to market, right, in Florida. I think it was the Florida Gators that down yeah. in the Florida heats, the football team would get dehydrated, particularly when they started training in the summer months. And so it was really designed for people who are losing a ton of sweat, a ton of electrolytes, a ton of glucose because they were depleting it because they were exercising. And they've taken it and it's been marketed to everyone drinks a Gatorade now if you're doing nothing, right? So, um, so that's why I like to dilute them at first. If you're losing electrolytes through you know, your fever, your nausea, your vomiting, diarrhea, then it's reasonable to add those back in. Um, and then if you certainly get, um, if, if you're not taking in a lot of calories because you're not feeling well, your stomach's upset, you can start to change those ratios a little bit and have a 75% replacement, 25% water. But I think the take home message here is water is the best, the absolutely best hydration that you can, you can get out there. And that's what 95% of people probably need initially when they get dehydrated is simple water alone, drink it till your urine's clear. That's my best advice. 
That is great advice and something that's so simple to do. And I know our patient population that that's something that tends to kind of be a, oh yeah, I guess I should up my water intake, so to speak. So I think that's a really good reminder, especially with cold and flu season is reach for the water before anything else and start with that. Can you talk about um, today, um, we are seeing the first vaccines rolling out. What does that look like for your hospital? Um, And um, like, what is, from your preparedness roles and helping communities get ready for this mass vaccination, what should our patients look for? you, you and I spoke briefly about how there's a, the schedule of 1A, 1B, who's in line for what. How do our patients find out like what their um, eligibility is? What, just, what do you know about the vaccine and how excited are you? <laughs> yeah, so, so first of all, today is a huge day in our country. We watched the, the uh, UK uh, and others, European countries in the last two weeks roll out their vaccine programs, which was pretty excited. Last Thursday, the, the advisory committee recommended to the FDA uh, emergency use authorization, which the FDA as of like Friday night, I think it was last week, granted that. And over the weekend, we saw mobilization at several of these Pfizer distribution centers. So let's be clear, it was the Pfizer product that was the first one. Uh, that was uh, that got through emergency use authorization. I think it's important to actually talk about that for one, for one second. So, so what emergency use authorization is, is a mechanism that the federal, um, that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, can use to allow a, let's say, a medication or a product to go out to the community based on some safety data that comes from phase three trials without the entire study coming to fruition yet. In other words, if if the data suggests that this product has a significant benefit to society and to the community, and there is some understanding of the side effect and safety profile where the benefit outweighs the risk, and right now we're dealing with a huge pandemic and, and if you're watching the news, we, you know, we have quite a situation on our hands now that they, they, can, they can execute this mechanism to allow this product to come to market. That doesn't mean that the studies stop and that's, you know, all those will continue in the background. And at some point, probably in 2021, we will get full FDA approval and authorization for this. So right now we're under an emergency use authorization. The Moderna product, which is the other vaccine, will probably go later this week through the same oh. process. So we'll have two vaccines uh, available, I think, by the end of this month, which will, which will bring millions of vaccines to our communities. So right now, I think at some point, I, you know, we're, we're on this call right now, I would imagine that this has been or will be delivered to the first uh, person in the United States uh, today at some point, maybe it's happened and we've missed it, but <laughs> it's happening today, they're rolling out. So this is such great news. Some people have described this as one of the biggest um, medical interventions, certainly in our generation. Um, and it gives some hope for where we're heading with this pandemic. Now, let's be clear to you and to our listeners, this doesn't, the, the switch doesn't flip, right? This right. week, next week. Uh, consider the numbers right now, we're, we're, we're reporting well over 200,000 cases per day in this country. We're talking about 3,000 people a day still dying in this country. This vaccine rollout during this 
critical numbers is like trying to put out a forest fire with a garden hose. It's gonna take some time. So we got some work to do. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, but the expression that's darkest before dawn probably is applying. We've heard those reports from the CDC that we're probably, you know, have some pretty staggering numbers roll through the end of this year and into January. But with the hope of a vaccine and a second vaccine coming to market, this is huge news and very, very encouraging. How it looks for us. So, so the federal government has purchased millions of these vaccines and, and the Pfizer product has been approved and it's already being shipped out. So states then receive the allocation based on population size and numbers and all that. Um, and so there's already a plan in place in my state and I'm positive there is in your state because every state has been planning for this. So my community hospital in Southern Maine is slated to receive 800 doses of this vaccine. My understanding is we are slated for the Moderna vaccine. That's why we're, we're okay. being pushed back to the week of the 21st because we're hopeful that Moderna goes through this week. Um, and so how that works is we, we can't require it. And I don't think any healthcare system will require it while it's under emergency youth authorization because it's considered experimental at this. You, there, are, there are ethical and, and other things go into place. Can you mandate you know, an experimental vaccine? So we surveyed our healthcare team and, and our employees at, at the hospital and we have a very high percentage that will, that will volunteer and take it um, as much as close to 70%, we believe. We also know, and we heard from the state, that if you currently have a COVID infection, which we have several healthcare workers who are currently out with a COVID, that those folks will be pushed back 90 days because we believe that there is some immunity from having an active infection. So you'll be pushed back 90 days on that. Even a previous um, infection, still you qualify for a vaccine. There is some boosted immunity that you get oh. from a vaccine. So um, we're gonna offer it uh, starting the week of the 21st, if, if things stay on the timeline that we believe it is, and we will hopefully get the majority of our employees vaccinated by the end of the year, hopefully by Christmas. Um, I'm on a preparedness team right now that's looking at that rollout, and uh, we have several meetings this week. We got our space plan. We're going to walk through our process. We're going to, we also want to figure out how to vaccinate people in a staggered way. So for example, one of the side effects that we understand from the data is that you could mount a small febrile response to this and feel kind of lousy like you do with the flu shot, right? Your right. arms sore, you get a low grade temp, you feel lousy. Well, it wouldn't be in our best interest to, let's say, vaccinate our whole emergency department on the same day. And then all of them wake up the next day and 60% of them have a fever of 100 and don't feel well. Now, all of a sudden, we're like, well, is this side effect of the vaccine? Do we have to test people for COVID? Who can come to work? So we'll, we have to work on that staggered approach of vaccinating people. Ideally, I think we wanna vaccinate somebody the day before they have an off day in their clinical schedule. So if they were to have a, have a minor side effect to the vaccine, that would, most of these mitigate by 24 hours is our understanding, 12 to 24 hours. So those are all the logistics going into place. But the bottom line, we have vaccine that's been allocated, slated to be delivered, and we're developing our protocol to roll that out to our employees. Then to your question, it's gonna become available also to long-term care facilities next. So people who are in nursing homes and, and, and facilities where, where they have long lengths of stay um, and that elderly risk uh, will be part of that 1A. 
And then 1B, you start getting into folks who are elderly comorbidities or all patients with chronic diseases. So that's then the next tier. And then it kind of goes from there. We're talking about other frontline workers, uh, grocery store employees, school teachers, et cetera. What we know from this vaccine is that there has been no um, uh, phase three trial looking at kids less than 16. So the pediatric population is something that probably won't get vaccinated until well into 2021. Okay. But, but your question about how do you know where you stand and where am I in line? That's a great question that's still being sorted out both at the federal level. There is a CDC recommendation that we've referenced a couple of times, but at the end of the day, the state you live in will determine adoption of, of those kind of protocols. So my suggestion is to your community of folks listening is to call your primary care provider and kind of see where you where you sit on this list and when it will be available. It's gonna come through healthcare systems, primary care offices, pharmacies change like CVS's, Walgreens and all of those. So there'll be multiple places. As a matter of fact, my test site, because we've done so well at having people come through in a drive-through fashion, our state CDC director has invited me and 13 other healthcare systems in the state of Maine to attend a Zoom meeting tomorrow, looking at current drive-through test sites in Maine to possibly be vaccination clinics for the public. So all sorts of interesting things happening. The bottom line is they wanna get most folks vaccinated by the first quarter into Q2 of 2021 here in our state, which I think would be consistent with most states. Wow. I guess for, because I have a public health background, I'm all, I'm constantly in my head thinking, how are we going to track everybody to make sure they go back for their second dose? Have yeah. you given that any thought? We have. Um, and part of that, I think, is part of this big planning. What we're going to do at the hospital with our employees, obviously, have something through their employee health record and, and whatnot. So the Pfizer is 21 days, second dose. The Moderna is 28 days. So even depending on what, what vaccine you get, there's a slightly different thing. Uh, because it's important. There was some discussions last night is what happens if you miss it or don't get the second one and, and or if you're a week late. The bottom line is even if you're, let's say, five weeks out, there's a re recommendation that you get that second dose. We know that this works most. The data that supports its, its sensitivity or efficacy, I should say, is based on the two doses. Um, there is some protection after the one dose, but it, it's, it's falls short. It's short of what you get with the second dosing. There's a lot of science behind the two the two dosing here. So, so getting that is critically important. And you bring up a really great point is that's gonna be a huge consideration of, of rolling this out. I will tell you that when states allocate, so for example, the 800 doses we're getting, that doesn't, that allotment doesn't, um, constitute the second dose. So we're, we're earmarked for 1600 doses. We're oh. getting the first 800 so we can give 800 people and then we're earmarked for the second 800. So we don't even have to break that up. So I know that there's been thought and planning that goes into that. And I think we'll see that kind of as it rolls out to the public uh, delivery as well. Wow. I know that just by the sounds of it, there's going to be a lot of communities looking to hospital situations or, or communities like yours where you've put together a really strong plan and you've been, it's been shown that you can execute it well. And as you stated, you're on 
calls now telling people how you've been able to do this and sort of set up a gold standard, which I'm so thankful for because I cannot imagine being in these shoes right now of trying to do all of this at rapid fire with so much on the line and so much data changing sometimes by the hour and just making sure you're doing the best for your community at all times and making these very very important decisions. So thank you, Eric, for, for doing that, because I know Minnesota is, um, we're in the thick of it right now. Um, per capita, we're looking like New York was last spring, and it's, it's slightly terrifying. So um, one question I wanted to ask you was when you spoke briefly just a little bit ago about the importance of social distancing and being mindful of where you are and wearing a mask. I know a lot of our patients feel like they have been cloistered or put into a cave or they're hermiting and there really are some studies and some effects on what that does to people uh, with their social skills and depression and um, what are some things that our patients can do to keep in mind that this this isn't a permanent situation? You know, it's really a, a, a short-term pain for a long-time gain. What do you know about it and what recommendations do you have for everybody to get through the next, I'm just going to be liberal on this and say 120 days? Yeah. Well, I, 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 the only the, the best parallels that I can draw are, are to uh, elderly population. I have parents who are in their late 70s and early 80s. I know it's impacted them, and I know the challenges that go into it. So I can only imagine uh, how it impacts your audience um, and and your folks as well. I. I I wish I had the foresight to buy Zoom stock, you know, a, a year ago. Um, certainly, there it's getting really creative to keep your social connections. So through through conferencing platforms like this, Zoom, FaceTime on your phone, and and all those are helpful. I do think there are creative ways where it was easier in the summer. You could get together in outdoor venues, right, and and keep some distance, and and those things were were really helpful and and connecting there. Um, I, I think it's really important to keep those social connections. We know that they're critically important to your health and well-being. So even just picking up the phone, phone and yeah, I talk to my parents twice a day, you know, um, just to check in and hear their voice and let them know I'm thinking about them and that sort of thing. Um, we did the Zoom uh, Thanksgiving, you know, a few weeks ago where we connected my sister in Rhode Island, who normally would come up with her family and my folks uh, in the next town over and all those. Was it the same? Absolutely not. Did we miss getting together? Of course we did. Um, you know, I told my parents last night, I said, you know, with the, with the thought of them possibly getting vaccinated as recently as January, that, you know, that, that there is so much now to be more hopeful about that we are, we got some challenging days ahead, of course, and you highlighted what's going on in your state, and, and it's true in many states, but there is there is an end game, right? There is an end game to this that we can all appreciate. All plagues, all pandemics have come to an end, you know, in the history of, of humankind, you know, whether it's, it's oh. you know, at least since 2009 H1N1 flu or it's, uh, you know, the, the polio outbreaks in the 40s and 50s that my father can still, you know, that he couldn't go swimming in the, in the river uh, back in the, that was his mother's instruction. You couldn't go to public pools because of the fears. And so this will end and, and people just got to hold on tight um, and hunker down because wouldn't it be sad and upsetting if you were to develop the infection, have some 
some long-term sequelae of it a month before you know you were out of the woods so to speak we've come so far and i imagine your audience and your listeners have done a phenomenal job of of fighting this back and pushing back against this and and whatnot um it's just that last push we're we're at the we're turning the corner um you, you know a few months left of this and and we should be in a much better place of you know by march april 2021 with a lot of us you know if i'm vaccinated and i feel really good about that my ability to go see my parents greatly improves you know right um, sooner than later so um, so I, there is, there is hope hang in there, I guess, is my, uh, continue doing what you're doing. Stay connected with your social groups, um, as best you can. And, um, this is gonna, this is gonna get better soon. Right. You know what? I, it's so obvious, but it was so nice to hear you say that all pandemics and plagues and there is an end and civilization did carry on. So I think that's important to remember for everybody that this, you know, it's not to trivialize it, but it, this too will end. And we, you are right. We are definitely today seeing the very small light at the end of this long tunnel that we've been in. So, oh, I am thankful for that. So it feels like forever. And it's been awful because we don't have anything to compare it to. But if you, everyone's talked about the 1918 uh, Spanish flu that lasted, you know, a good almost three years. They, they highlight the one year, but that dragged on. There were several, you know, the, the fact that modern science has brought a vaccine to market in less than a year, I don't think anyone can comprehend the meaning of that. Even, you know, measles took four years. To, that was the quickest prior to this measles vaccine took four years to come to market. Um, so, so we can applaud our advances in science that have gotten us through this in a little bit quicker. It feels like forever. I get it. People, we're going to look back, uh, you know, we're going to talk about this and say, remember 2020, it's going to be that thing that stuck out, no doubt mm -hmm. about it. But in many ways, and it's hard to see that now, I get it, uh, but we'll look back and say, we actually kind of lucked out. There will be another one that will come along, but, 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 you know, it's just part of the nature of, of human existence is battling um, infectious diseases. But, but gosh, I, the one thing I'll take away from this is, is many lessons learned. Um, and it's been a challenge for so many people, but, but we really will look back at this and say, we quickly as a society um, figured this out within two weeks of identifying the virus. We had already sequenced the genome that already started the vaccine. You know, by end of January, we'd sequenced the, the the genetic code to this virus. That's phenomenal. That is, that is phenomenal. And you're right. That was definitely the jumping off point for the pharmaceutical companies to start engineering what they had already had been. Thank goodness, been working on and putting it all together to get this through. Because you are. 100% correct. This could have taken a lot longer with a lot with an, a tremendous serious consequences to our country. Well, to the civilization of everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. okay. Well, I appreciate your time, but I have to go into rapid fire. This is, this is a part of the, the, the podcast that we just ask some questions just to see where you're at and um, just have a little bit of fun. So first question, what is the a show that you've binged and thoroughly enjoyed? So me and my family just finished the, the Queen's Gambit, which is a Netflix. Uh, and I was resistant. I saw it get really popular in October. I came out, I was like, gosh, I don't really play chess. I don't, uh, I don't get it. But boom, loved it. Loved Check it. it. Yep, yeah. same here. What is your favorite Never Will Forget concert or live performance or something? 
Gosh, I saw Billy Joel and Elton John dueling pianos in Atlanta, Georgia uh, 20 years ago, and it stands out as just a phenomenal show. Oh my gosh, that would have been, oh, I can't imagine seeing Elton John live. Okay, um, what is your favorite meal? You know, I got to say that uh, I'm a, I guess a, a pasta meal, a good Italian meal is, is hard to beat. I'm lucky enough to live close to Boston in the North End, so uh, uh, can't go wrong with a good Italian meal. Can't go wrong with that at all. Um, and then last, if we were to get a snapshot of something part of your ordinary day that brings you great joy, what would that be? You know, I have a daughter who's in college who's home, who came home two weeks before Christmas because her she's a senior. Her school went stay in place and or shelter in place with uh, some rising numbers, and it's a it's it's a great reminder of family connection and being close and and having dinner together and and sharing in in some moments that probably would have been different if this wasn't here. She would be off to college doing her thing. And listen, I wanted her to get back to that. She's a, she's a student athlete uh, who's in her senior year, hopeful to have a spring mm. lacrosse season, but I'm grateful for the opportunity for our family to share meals every night. I'm a lacrosse mom too. My daughter played lacrosse in college and you're right. It, there is for us parents, it's wonderful to have our, 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 our chickadees come back to the nest yeah. and have these uh, these different experiences but we know in our heart that it's best for them to be out there doing what they're doing but we are getting some pretty awesome experiences and conversations and time with them that we probably wouldn't have had so I agree this has been a kind of a, a, a two-headed sword blessing for all of us. Well, Eric, one, thing you, one thing you didn't ask me that you warned me you might is what book I'm reading. I do want oh, to yeah. share this with your listeners. So I picked up Apollo's Arrow. Um, okay. And uh, check it out. Apollo's Arrow is written by um, a, a physician slash researcher at Yale. Um, it's about this COVID pandemic, but it's written for someone like me to really enjoy who's in the middle of it, but also to the layperson. It's a really great book describing the impact of coronavirus, how it's similar to past pandemics in the past, what we've learned. Easy, fun read, interesting, Apollo's Arrow. Check it out. Okay, definitely. Oh, thank you for that reminder. I just wrote that down. I will definitely be putting that on my Barnes and Noble Nook. So that's great. Thank I you. I don't get any kickback on that. I don't know <laughs> the author personally, but uh, I've enjoyed the book and I thought I'd share it. No, that's no, I love that. I like to get personal recommendations and Lord knows I'm reading a lot lately, so that's great. So thank you. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. I really appreciate all of your time and your insight. I could probably chit-chat with you for hours. You are right up my uh, bailiwick with you, all of your insight on this and the preparedness and all of the mechanics of behind the scenes and how this is all going to work. And um, you've really given me a lot to smile and feel hopeful about today, Eric. So thank you so much for that. Well, I'm, I, uh, you can always reach out again if you ever want to do this again. Things okay. are evolving and changing, so keep me on your speed dial. Um, but also, I just want to wish you and, and all your listeners uh, stay, stay healthy, um, hang in there, happy holidays, and um, well, 2021, much better year. Much better year, right? It can, it, it's it's got to be. <laughs> it's just got to be. Thank you. Thank you, and happy holidays to you as well. Bye-bye. Okay.